This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spectacular people welcome to this 279th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane on this episode i'm going to be joined by listener whitney zahar you guys might recall she joined me to talk about the legends of taiwan this time she's here to share the history and hauntings of the fairy plantation house and we're also going to talk about the virginia witch before we get into that, I'd like to welcome to the Spectacular crew, Austin, Laura, Marvin, David, Felix, Claudia, Brandy, May, with an A-E, J-B, Heather, M-E, Jess, and James. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. There's a curious hole in Arkansas that opened up in September of 2018. What makes this hole in the ground so bizarre is the fact that it had 12-foot flames shooting out of it. The phenomenon lasted for only 40 minutes, and in that time, several people witnessed this flaming hole. The hole opened up on someone's private property, and it has stumped investigators. Some have reasoned that it was space junk that fell from the sky and made a hole, while others think it was a gas leak. None of these theories seem plausible since the hole has actually been around for over 10 years. So I guess we're left with one plausible explanation. Could it be Satan? Baxter County Judge Mickey Pendergrass told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette that he had ruled out Satan, stating, as far as the spiritual Satan goes, we've ruled that out. He didn't come up and stick his pitchfork in the ground and blow that hole out. Investigators are sending out soil samples to see if they can find any answers. One thing is for certain, a mysterious flaming hole opening up in Arkansas certainly is odd. Turn out the lights. The party's just getting started. And now, this month in history. In the month of October, on the 25th, in 1932, William H. Eddy passed away. William and his brother Horatio were born in Chittenden, Vermont, and even though they had humble beginnings, they would soon become famous for their abilities as mediums. Henry Alcott was sent by New York's Daily Graphic to investigate the amazing reports about the Eddy brothers. He spent 10 weeks living with the brothers and was present at multiple seances, where he claims to have seen extraordinary things. 
Alcott told the story over 15 articles. He claimed that he saw about 400 apparitions of all sizes, genders, and races come out of a cabinet the brothers used during seances. He tested everything, measured everything, and looked for all forms of trickery and could find nothing. He was convinced the Eddy brothers were the real deal and said that William Eddy had a real knack for producing apparitions. The two main spirits William would produce were a Native American chief named Santum and a Native American woman named Honto. Many believe Alcott was gullible and the Eddy brothers were just good tricksters. William later broke away from his brother Horatio and had nothing to do with spiritualism again. He never married and when he died in October of 1932, he was 99 years old. To hear more about the Famous Brothers, check out episode 191 where we covered the Eddie Brothers. The site where the Ferry Plantation House stands in Virginia Beach was once the scene of a trial for a woman accused of practicing witchcraft. That woman was Grace Sherwood, and it would be her neighbors that claimed she was a witch who would bewitch their land and animals. She underwent the test of ducking to see if she was indeed a witch. Over the years, several houses stood on the site, falling victim to fires. The most recent house is a great example of federal architecture and features a glimpse of colonial life. This home also features ghostly activity produced by reputedly many apparitions. The Ferry Farm is said to be one of the most haunted locations in Virginia. Listener Whitney Zahar joins me to discuss the life of Grace Sherwood and the history and haunts of the Fairy Plantation House. Well, guys, I am joined by Whitney Zahar. She joined me for Legends of Taiwan, and she is back to talk about the Fairy Plantation House in Virginia Beach. How are you, Whitney? I'm doing good. How are you, Diane? I'm doing fabulous. When you suggested this to me, I thought, wow, this looks like an interesting place. I always love talking about plantations and things like that. And anytime somebody suggests something to me, I kind of do a quick little Google search to see what's out there. And this place sounds like it's got all kinds of activity. Yeah. And apparently paranormal investigator teams have been going there for at least the last 22 years. And they're still going to this very day. And what's even better about just this being a quote-unquote haunted plantation is the fact that it even has a back history that is kind of connected to, I don't know if you want to say the Salem Witch Trials, but it definitely is connected to witch trials. Yeah, yes. One of our most famous. And I actually have a special kinship with the lady in question, Miss Grace Sherwood, because I actually was in a play about her. So she has been a very special part of my life for a very long time. Well, that's very cool. I figure we might as well go ahead and start with Grace Sherwood because everything that happened in connection to her was prior to the Fairy Plantation House being built at this site. So let's find out what happened here that might be causing some issues. Okay, yeah. So Grace Sherwood, she was actually born in 1660 uh, to John and Susan White. And she was born in a section of Virginia Beach called Pungo. Just like in England, Virginia Beach or Princess Anne County, as it was known back then, was divided into different boroughs. And they still are to this very day. Pungo was a fairly uh, rural area. And in fact, most of Virginia Beach was and in many ways still is a very rural area to this very day. So people were very spread out. John White, Grace's father, was a Scotsman, apparently. He was from Scotland and he was a carpenter. 
And his daughter, Grace, married a man named James Sherwood in about 1680. And they had three sons. So that's the basics. James Sherwood was a farmer. And at that time, see, the thing is about Virginia Beach or Princess Anne County is not everybody there was very elite. Not like what you would see in Williamsburg. This is not the capital of Virginia. This is not where you're going to find a whole lot of the gentry class. There were a few, but it was so spread out and so scattered. And also a lot of the connection of people back in those days, especially around this area, was through water transport. There are so many different little inlets and rivers and waterways in that area. This is a much more different world than the manicured nature of Williamsburg, if you look at it that way. Okay. As a result, James Sherwood was actually very well respected, but he was not, they were not rich people, not by any stretch of the imagination. So to supplement the income, Grace actually grew herbs and she used these herbs to help people. She was actually running a little business, healing people, helping animals. And she also acted as a midwife. Now remember that part, cause that's going to come up later. Okay. <laughs> So come 1701, uh, her husband dies, leaving Grace, of course, a widow, and she inherited the property. And we're looking at like 145 acres of land. Not too shabby. Not not back in those days. Yeah. That's a little bit of the background that we know about Grace Sherwood up until this point. One thing that's really cool, you brought up the Salem witch trials. Now, of course, this has already happened I'm not exactly sure how fast the news of what happened in Salem spread down to Virginia. I think in some quarters, we did hear about it. I think we did. But it wasn't as big of an issue in Virginia as it was up in Massachusetts. In Virginia, the courts were actually very reluctant to hear about witchcraft cases. They find those things very divisive. Plus, Virginia courts were more interested in looking at what we would not what we would call more hard evidence. They did not want what was called spectral evidence, which meant basically evidence based on supposedly supernatural occurrences. Okay. That's different from what happened in Salem. Salem was almost the exact opposite. Sure, cause we had all kinds of weird stuff going on there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, witchcraft is still considered a crime. It's a felony, actually. You know, if you were convicted, you definitely could be facing death, death by hanging. However, what's interesting is in Virginia, there are, to my knowledge, no records of executions based on witchcraft in Virginia. Okay which is kind of interesting. (laughs) However, there were definitely a few little blips on the witchcraft radar. There were a few like in the early 1600s, just spattered here and there. There was only one person that actually got convicted, but he did not get executed. I think he had to pay a fine and he served a little bit of time in jail. I think that's what happened to him. So that's the background. And also the other thing, too, is Virginia courts were actually more interested in hearing cases about gossip and slander because they believed that's what divides a community. That's what breaks down the social order. So they were more interested in that. So this is how the uh, trial against Grace Sherwood started. It started with slander. So as early as 1697, now mind you, this is while her husband is still alive. Okay. 
1697, a man named Richard Capps accused Grace of putting a spell on his bull, and the bull died as a result. Obviously, the Sherwoods, they countered. They were like, no, we did not do that. And they, the court actually did not follow through with uh, Richard Capps' complaint. They're like, oh, come on, really? They, they were basically like that. They're like, okay, there's really no nothing aside from your word. Because what they wanted was they wanted the accuser to carry the burden of proof, not the accusee. In Salem, it was up to the innocent to prove that they were innocent. Well, Virginia makes a lot more sense with the way they're doing things because it's a lot easier for you to have to sit there and have people accusing you and having to prove basically what we have in our court of law now. You're innocent until proven guilty rather than having somebody saying you're a witch and then you have to prove you're not. Yeah, pretty much. Now, again, having said that, they did also look for ways to see if somebody was a witch because it was a serious accusation. So they would ask people, okay, check to see if they have a witch's mark, you know, which, as you probably know, it takes the form of different birthmarks that aren't quote unquote normal. Sure, we probably all have at least one. Yeah, we all do, especially, I mean, if you go by. I'm going to use Outlander as an example because that's one of my favorite historical fiction books. She was, they would have been considered witches, not just because of their advanced knowledge, but because they had the smallpox vaccine scar. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, so back to Grace. It happened again to her in 1698. It happened to them twice. The first one was from John Gisburn, who accused Grace of enchanting his pigs and his cotton crops. So basically nothing grew, the pigs weren't producing, whatever it was there, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Again, just like what happened with Richard Capps, the Sherwoods basically countersued. The courts would not rule against them. However, then they would put a suit about defamation of slander, defamation of character against the other person. And they would lose, actually. They would... Grace and John and James Sherwood never won any of their countersuits and, in fact, had to pay court charges. Great. So it was like tit for tat almost. Sure. Again, in 1698, there's another woman. This time it's a woman who accuses Grace. Her name is Elizabeth Barnes. Now, Elizabeth Barnes is going to show up again. She basically accused Grace of changing into a black cat, slipping through her keyhole, climbing onto her bed, and basically whipping and riding her through the night. Sounds like a bad party. (laughs) It it does, doesn't it? (laughs) And actually... This testimony of Elizabeth Barnes has been preserved in uh, records. You can actually find this testimony. And we actually used this in part of the script that we used in the play about Grace Sherwood in uh, Williamsburg called Cry Witch. Mm -hmm. So we were quoting directly from court records on that one. Well, did the court take her seriously? No, not really. Because again, it was tit for tat. However, and by this point, now we're going to kind of jump ahead a couple of years to 1705. So by this time, James Sherwood is dead. Grace is alone. Her boys, I'm not sure exactly how old her sons are, but they have probably grown up and married and gone their own way. She's a widow. She's alone. Now, we don't know what Grace actually looked like. Uh, The story goes is that she was actually tall and attractive. And part of her, she worked very hard. So she actually would wear men's trousers out in the field. Mm -hmm. 
which of course back in those days was not really an acceptable thing for no. a woman to do. <laughs> so there were already a few things against her and already she was proving cantankerous, you know, just people were bringing suits against her and then she'd fight back. And that's not something you would see much in women in those days. No. Definitely not. Yeah. So you can see why I love this lady. (laughs) (laughs) I like her too. She was spicy. (laughs) Anyway, but now we're going to get to the meat of the matter. So in 1705, Grace Sherwood gets into a fight with a neighbor of hers, Elizabeth Hill, and her husband, Luke. And Sherwood actually sued Elizabeth Hill and Luke Hill for assault and battery. We don't know exactly what the fight was. We don't know what context had happened, but Grace actually won her case. Uh, She got, I believe, about one pound sterling, the equivalent of that as a reward for winning the case. And by this point, January 3rd, 1706, the Hills accused Sherwood of witchcraft. Now, some of that came from the fact that Elizabeth Hill was pregnant, and apparently after some kind of meeting or altercation with Grace Sherwood, she miscarries. So Mm. naturally, they're going to blame Grace. And Grace was a midwife. So who better would have that kind of knowledge? Yeah. Now, by this point, the courts, of course, are like, okay, now they're actually bringing up the the case of witchcraft, which despite what we think, it is still a felony offense. We're going to order Grace to appear, Miss Sherwood, to appear in court. And she was ordered to appear in the local court on February 7th, 1706. Obviously, she's saying she's not a witch. Uh, So what they're going to start doing is they're going to start examining her. This is the examining of her body for the witch's mark or the devil's teat, as they would call them. So they commanded a jury of women because you don't want a man doing that. (laughs) (laughs) On March 7th, 1706, Grace was examined by a jury of women, and actually the forewoman of this jury of women was Elizabeth Barnes. Okay, yeah, no bias there. (laughs) So if you, and if you remember, she's the one who accused Grace of being a black cat and riding her at night. Did they check her for a Sharpie? I'm sure she just, you know... (laughs) (laughs) look there's a mark there's a mark there's a mark now whether grace actually did have an extra freckle or two i'm really not sure i mean again we don't know what grace actually looked like Mm -hmm. but we do know that uh, by this point the jury of women actually discovered two marks on her body that are not like theirs or like those of any other woman okay is what they said still at this point the Colonial authorities in Williamsburg, which is where the high general court is, and the local court in Prince Anne County, they still weren't really willing to declare that Grace Sherwood is a witch based on any of this quote-unquote evidence. The court in Williamsburg instructed the local court to examine the case a little more further. Now, just so you know, Grace would actually have to appear at court, and she was taking time out of work on her own farm she would have to travel 16 miles to where the court was. And just so you know, to connect to what we're going to talk about later, she was tried in the second uh, Princess Anne County Courthouse, which was on the grounds of the Ferry Plantation. Which is where we get our basis here for what has happened on the site prior to the house being there. See, everything connects. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... 
they believe the county justices believe that even though they don't see any real quote unquote rich witchcraft in particular, it was still enough to cause that there was a great cause of suspicion against her. So what they decided to do was to put her in custody and then they were going to go ahead and order a trial by ducking. Mm. Okay. They're going to see if she can float. Basically. uh, And I mean, you see shades of Monty Python and the Holy Grail here, but this was actually a really tough thing to do to a person. First, you would actually wrap them in cloth in a sack and you would tie them up. You would actually tie their right thumb to their left big toe. Mm. And then you tie their left thumb to their right big toe. So you basically cross them together. And that's a really hard position to be in for a long period of time. And then, of course, because water was considered a pure element, if she floated, that meant that the pure element coughed her up and she was probably a witch. But if she sank, well, tough luck. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah, I always loved that one because it's like, oh, you were innocent because you drowned. Bummer. (laughs) Well, also back in those days, they didn't really expect women to really know how to swim swim. A lot of people, of course, didn't know how to swim back then. That's true, too. That's true, too. Although it's kind of funny in Virginia, especially in a place like Virginia Beach, which is surround, so close to the ocean and surrounded by so much water, swimming really is an important skill to have. Sure. Might flood a little bit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Originally, they were going to have it on July 5th, 1706, but there were some heavy rains, so they postponed until July 10th of 1706. The reason why they postponed is they felt that the wet weather would harm her health. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to we're going to try to drown her, but we're worried about her health. Yeah, pretty much. This takes place in the morning of July 10th, 1706, and actually this event had attracted people from all over Virginia to come and watch. So, very much like what you would see in a hanging. I mean, a hanging was a big event. Mhm. Bring people out, take, bring the kids, have a holiday. Now you're coming out and you're watching the witch being ducked. Basically, they just rode her out. They rode her about 200 yards out into the Linhaven River uh, to this little area called Witch Duck Bay. And it's on Witch Duck Point, or at least as it would later be called, Witch Duck Point. Uh, it, she would be, they were facing north and they were ro- she was rowed 200 yards out. So in one boat, she was there. And then in another boat were the sheriff and the magistrate. She was rowing out with them. Some people say that Sherwood claim was claimed to have said, before this day be through, you will all get a worse ducking than I. Mm-hmm. Now hold up on that. So the sheriff then tied a uh, Bible, a 13-pound Bible around her neck. Mm. She was actually thrown in twice. First time, she was thrown in without the Bible. And she floated. (laughs) The second time they put a 13 pound Bible around her neck, thrown overboard. She actually sank a little bit, but then she untied herself and swam to the surface. Mm. Now, as she was being pulled out, apparently a downpour started, which drenched everybody that was watching. (laughs) (laughs) So as a result of this, they're thinking, well, let's put her in jail now. So she was then jailed pending further proceedings. 
normally what would happen in a case like this is if there was enough evidence brought against someone at the county level, then they could be taken to the general court in Williamsburg, where they could be tried on basically the colony-wide level as a felony trial. But that didn't happen with Grace Sherwood. Actually, we're not really sure what exactly happened to her until the year 1714. As far as we know, she stayed in the jail next to the Lynnhaven Parish Church uh, for quite some time. We don't know for how much. Some people say seven years, but we're really not sure. However, in 1714, she, was, she appears to have been released sometime either on 1714 or before that point. And she was able to pay back taxes on her property and was able to recover her property back from the county. And that's where she lived. She finished the remainder of her life until her death in 1740. She was about 80 years old when she passed away. So she was ducked twice and lived to tell about it. Pretty much. And what's interesting about this is usually you would think that she would have been condemned to death then and then hanged. Interesting that she managed to skirt away from that. Yeah. And once again, we really don't know what happened before 1714, because a lot of the records, the court records, were actually lost either during the American Revolution or during the Civil War. Princess Anne County, Virginia Beach, kept most of its records. So we actually do have a copy of her will, which was proved on October 1st, 1740. So that was pretty cool. And she left money. She left some money to her sons and her oldest son, John, got everything else. Apparently, there is a legend about her that when she died, her uh, sons put her body near the fireplace and a wind came down the chimney. Apparently, her body disappeared and the only clue left behind was a cloven hoof print. (laughs) That's a great story. (laughs) (laughs) There are loads of legends about Grace Sherwood. Well, you know, the other thing that I heard about her is that it was possible that she was of some kind of mixed ethnicity and that's why people had some issues with her. That could be very possible. I mean, once again, we don't know what she looked like. Mm -hmm. We do know that her father was a Scotsman, but who knows about her mother? We know from all of these witch trials, as we look back over history, it generally is neighbors that are pointing the fingers at each other, either because they're having disputes with land or something else. And clearly that was the case here, too. Oh, it was oh, it was awful. And it just seemed to go tit for tat up and up and up. And it just seemed to escalate even to the point where she where there was assault and battery going on against her. So somewhere down the road here now, we've had somebody who's purchased the land where her trial took place and they decided to put a plantation house on top of it. Ah, the fairy plantation house. This place is so cool. I think I went here when I was a little girl. When I was in third or fourth grade, that's when they taught Virginia Beach history. And I do remember touring several of the old buildings that were around in that area. And it was so cool. And I was like, oh, Grace Sherwood. And I had already known about her because I read a book. The property was actually used long before that. As early as 1642, there was actually a ferry boat service that Mm. was operating on this property by a guy named Seville Gaskin was his name. Apparently, there were 11 stops on the ferry around the Lynnhaven River because, once again, in this particular area, that's the main way you're getting connected with people is through the waterways. Sure. 
Yeah, and hence it's called Fairy Plantation House based on that. And as I said earlier, the second Princess Anne County Courthouse was built as a part of the property, but uh, closer to another very old building, an old church called Old Donation Church, where I actually went to preschool. Oh, wow. <laughs> Talk about is, a connection. It is super old. That mm. that whole area, this is basically uh, the area around Pembroke. There's hospitals and a mall and all sorts of things there now. But there are so many old buildings. Uh, one of the oldest houses was actually built around 1636. Wow. One of the oldest houses. And that was actually was one of the men that eventually rose to prominence in Virginia Beach. His name was Adam Thorogood, and he was one of the earliest settlers in the area. And he has a very small house that was built in 1636. And that area, now that house also has some history to it too. But anyway, Old Nation Church, um, which is super old and it's gorgeous. It is so beautiful. Later on, uh, there was another courthouse built on the property. It was actually the first brick courthouse in Princess Anne County, and it was built and inactive from 1735 to 1751. Then by that time, the fam, the Walk family, uh, W-A-L-K-E, they built what was the original Walk Mansion, and that was there from 1751 to 1828. Uh, it was built by William Walk. Now, that place burned down in a fire in 1828, and the house that's standing today was rebuilt in 1830, and it was a- it actually used the bricks from the ruins of the fire of the original house. Okay. That's actually kind of interesting because we talk about in the paranormal about what's left behind. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting, maybe another reason why there could be so many stories of hauntings might have something to do with a lot of the original brick from the house was used. Sure, you've got stone, and we wonder about how energy absorbs into that. Yeah, and that brick, was, I mean, for if you've ever seen Virginia clay, that's hard stuff. Okay. that That's really potent, deep clay that you can use as bricks. And also, you're close to water, so you got a couple of other things going there, too. In any case, the current manor was built by uh, George and Elizabeth McIntosh. Elizabeth was a walk. And the family that then owned the house was the McIntosh family. And they actually built it for their son, Charles McIntosh, who was a captain of the CSS Louisiana during the Civil War. Now, he's going to come up again as one of the possible reasons for one of the spirits in that house. It's a cool place. It was abandoned for a while, especially in the early 80s thereabouts. And so some of the happenings that was said to happen there is when the house was abandoned, uh, people would claim to see lights coming on, turning on and off in the house when they knew nobody was there. And apparently that's still happening anyway. The house, can you describe it to us? Let's see. So the house itself, it looks like what it has, you have a brick federal style house. So you have the beautiful portico with these long, long pillars towards the front. Uh, it looks like there's also a white frame on either side that look like they could be uh, outbuildings attached. You have two main floors, and then it looks like you've got dormer windows upstairs. So there could be a third floor as well. Nice. Yeah, it is absolutely gorgeous. And the cool thing is how it's just there. And all the 21st century is kind of up all around it. 
it's just amazing how that happens. And it shows how much Virginia Beach has grown from what it started out as is just a small kind of spread out rural environment to probably the largest, most populated city in Virginia today. Sure. And everybody wants to go to the beaches there. Yeah, I kind of like it too. (laughs) (laughs) You're not biased at all. (laughs) No, no, not at all. (laughs) I've never been to Virginia Beach, but I've heard that the beaches are gorgeous. Yeah, there's like a mile of boardwalk. And there's also some pretty cool little history buildings there too. Neat. That's the basic background of the uh, fairy plantation house. And they say that Grace Sherwood's ghost is there, just kind of talking to her dog. And they also say that she manifests as like a little ball of light sometimes. There are talks about other apparitions that they see on the property too. When this first popped up, it was like, this is one of the most haunted locations in the state of Virginia itself. And I was like, okay, well, how much is going on here? And they said that there's at least, they think, 11 ghosts that are floating around. That is what they say. There's some very interesting activity. Now, as I also said earlier, there have been several paranormal investigation groups that have come through the Fairy Plantation House, and they actually have been coming for about 22 years. So there's, if you go on either, there's actually two different websites that are associated with Fairy Plantation, and you can actually look at some of the evidence that they have there. Uh, They also have an event coming up in a couple of weeks called the Stroll of Lost Souls. And that's a chance for people to also talk to the paranormal investigators and hear about their experiences and even do a little investigating of their own. I love the name. I know. Stroll of Lost Souls. That's like the best. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds elegant, doesn't it? It does. Now, a lot of these uh, stories, too, have been collected by a woman named Belinda Nash. And she was actually on the board of directors for the Ferry Plantation House, as well as it's the site director for several years. And she was somebody who really wanted to spearhead the education and the preservation of this property. She was also wrote a really cool book about Grace Sherwood, too. One experience that she talks about is an experience with her granddaughter. Uh, they were at the house, and at the time, her granddaughter was a toddler. And she, the little girl claimed to have seen, appearing on the second floor landing, she claimed to see a man dressed in a dirty shirt, wearing a beard, and he was painting, like painting a picture. Now, sometime later, Ms. Nash received a watercolor of the Fairy Plantation House, and it had been painted by General Thomas H. Williamson, who was the son of former owners of the house. His dates are 1813 to 1888, and he was an artist. There, there is an image of him, and when the little girl saw the image, she said that was the man she saw. Whoa. Interesting. Yeah, so we have an artist there. I mean, a cool thing about a lot of these hauntings is they seem very directly connected to the family that lived on the property. Another one was a pre- appeared as a pregnant woman, a very sad pregnant woman. And of course, people were wondering, who could this be? Well, Mrs. Charles F. McIntosh, who was the wife of the people that built the current house in 1830. She was the wife of Captain Charles McIntosh captain of the CSS Louisiana, and at the time she was eight months pregnant, and her husband had actually died of injuries sustained during 
a battle where the CSS Louisiana was hit. And he succumbed to his injuries on May 13th of 1862. So some people believe that this apparition of the pregnant woman was Mrs. Charles F. McIntosh mourning her husband. Interesting. Yeah, pretty sad. That, that That's really sad, actually. It is. When you think about it. I mean, you're on the verge of one of the happiest moments of your life, being pregnant, having a child. And then you hear about the death of your husband during a war that basically tore her country apart. And that's not dead. only just that, but then you also have the time period that you're looking at. How are you going to provide and make it without your husband and you're about to have a baby? It's yeah, I can't even imagine. Exactly. It's it's devastating. And we think it's also devastating today, too. Sure. Yeah. We have a lady in white, Diane. Your of favorite. course. <laughs> <laughs> now, we don't know who this lady in white is, but she reports of her started as started around 1826. Uh, there was supposedly a party on the property. And what's interesting. So this is when the original walk mansion was standing, because remember that one burned down in 1828. Sure. So this might be residual from the bricks, maybe? Who knows? This lady in white was found at the bottom of the stairs uh, during this party, and she was dead, apparently, from a broken neck, possibly from a fall down the stairs. We don't know why. We don't know how. But she's said to be just kind of strolling around the property. Uh, some reports have even seen her riding a bicycle, like an old-fashioned bicycle. Now, I'm not sure about the history of bicycles. I don't know what was around in 1826, but that's what some people have reported. Wow, that's weird. <laughs> it is kind of funny. Especially if they think that she fell and broke her neck going down some stairs. Why is she all of a sudden riding a bicycle? Who knows? Who knows? But they also say that she kind of walks around the property too. This property was used as many different things. In fact, the original owners, uh, William Walk, uh, during the revolution, he operated a tavern at the old, at the original house. So who knows what you may have gotten from that? <laughs> sure. Well, apparently, uh, Whitney, I looked it up. The earliest bicycle was in 1790. There you go. Hmm. Intriguing, isn't it? So, yeah. and once again, we don't exactly, the report of the story is of the woman who died was 1826, but because we don't know who she is and the report is kind of vague, we it could have taken place earlier for all we know. That's true, since yeah. they don't have anything really documented. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. You know me, I have to go down that rabbit hole when it comes to the bicycles. And what I found is that some historians credit the invention of the pedal bicycle to Kirkpatrick Macmillan. He was a Scottish blacksmith who added pedals to the bicycle in 1839. Before that time, people did the Flintstones thing, you know, propelling themselves forward using their feet. The bone shaker bike was what is considered the modern bicycle. Many historians credit Pierre and Ernst Michaud as being the true inventors of the modern bicycle. These two were carriage makers who were father and son, and they first assembled a two-wheeled velocipede, or what came to be known as the bone shaker, around 1867. This bike was propelled like a tricycle with its cranks and pedals connected to the front wheel. The design came to the U.S. in 1863. 
So since we have a spirit riding around on an 1826 bike, but since the bicycle design didn't make its way here to the U.S. until 1863, something isn't connected here. So either the spirit riding the bike is from a more recent era, or I'm not sure what's going on there. Thanks for joining me down the rabbit hole. Thought you'd get a kick out of the lady in white. (laughs) Absolutely. It seems like every place has one. So if you're going to have 11 ghosts, you've got to have at least one lady in white in the mix. Or a lady in gray. (laughs) Or that too. She seems to be popping up a lot lately too. Apparently, uh, just to backtrack to the uh, pregnant ghost, I believe she manifests in a gray gown. But there's another ghost uh, that has appeared, another lady. She appears dressed in dark colors, uh, like either black or a gray color. She's not called the lady in gray, unfortunately, but her name is Sally Walk. Uh, She was a cousin of the family, and she was staying there during the Civil War. And she heard in April of 1863 that her fiancé was killed in action, which, of course, again, yet another report of of a woman whose love dies during war. I mean, she's at the beginning of her life as an adult woman. Mm hmm. It's terrible. But she planted a large magnolia tree. I'm not exactly sure where it is on the property, but there is a magnolia tree that it was planted in this man's memory. Nice. Yeah. And she said to appear, there was actually an EVP caught of someone saying, of a woman's voice saying, I'm chilled because apparently Sally appears near the fireplace. Okay. This is just really weird because just Two episodes ago, I'm talking about the Iron Island Museum, and that's one of the yes. EVPs that they picked up with somebody saying that they're cold. I know. Well, I mean, and it's like, well, wait a minute. How are you? I mean, if ghosts are spirits of the dead, how are they even cold? That's what I've always wondered. How are they feeling it? And then it kind of makes you worried because you're like, can you feel cold over there? Because everybody knows how I feel about cold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you hate it. <laughs> Do not want to be there. So like, home. I don't know how I feel about this, man. Yeah. I don't know. Well, this might warm you up a little bit. Another fireplace ghost. And this kind of comes about in a different way. So there's apparently the ghost of a former slave. Now his apparition kind of follows a residual path. He basically comes up from the basement, walks across the floor. And he kneels at the west wall on the first floor. He looks like he's doing something, but we don't know quite what it is. Then he rises up and he goes back the way he came, back down to the basement. Now, apparently during restoration of the house, they found a fireplace in that west wall. Hmm. And apparently, according to EVPs, this man was a former slave called Henry. And he, even though the Emancipation Proclamation had come out, he wanted to stay. He was content where he was. And one EVP even said one thing he liked to do was go and fishing. Hmm. Yeah. So that kind of warms your heart a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's better than just being um, cold. At least you get to go fishing. Yeah, at least. Although it's very interesting. I find it very interesting that the apparition is re- apparently a residual you know, following a certain pattern. And yet the EVP seems to be a little bit more conscious. You know what I mean? Those two don't go together. I've never heard of that happening before, but I mean, I guess you could have both that he is having some kind of residual, but occasionally it's conscious too. I, who knows? Cause you know, we don't know what is causing something to be residual. So if it's just an imprint, it would be possible for the ghost that has that imprint to also be conscious somewhere else in the building or the house or what have you. Absolutely. I think that's definitely possible, too. And I 
kind of like to think, I mean, we're always going to speculate what ghosts really are. I think we're always going to speculate on that. I like this one thing that I heard from a researcher. Uh, his name is Jeff Belanger. Mm -hmm. And most people who are who know the paranormal know who Jeff Belanger is. Uh, he's amazing. But one thing, and I'm probably going to loosely quote him, he says, ghosts are history waiting to be heard. Oh, well, that's a nice way to put it. I love it. And I really do agree with him on that because, and it also just goes into my work with museums and historic sites because I feel that that's history waiting to be heard and you never know what you may find. That's a great way to put it too. You think about when you have these people who are out digging around the archaeologists and such and they pull something out of the dirt. It's like it is. It's history's wanting to be heard. So here comes a, a clay pot or something. Exactly. I actually saw that recently in another location uh, that's near where I live now. I'm still in Virginia. I just have moved closer to Richmond. Okay. And we have checked out this place called the Hanover Tavern, which is in Hanover County, Virginia. That place is just amazing. They have display cases full of archaeology finds like broken bottles and things like that but they also have a playhouse they have a theater there and they also have quite a few stories of hauntings of their own mm, nice a good place you need patrick, to check out yeah that's patrick henry's stomping grounds there's lots of other stories with the fairy house plantation there's stories about children there's apparently uh toys getting messed with there's apparently a little girl that appears she's dressed in mary jane's and they say she matches the description of bessie mcintosh who i think was about five years old when she passed away okay which is very sad there's also apparently victims from a shipwreck that happened when the ferry was still operating there the early 1800s so there's a lot and then you factor in the water you factor in the fact that there was a fire and they used the original bricks to build the new house mm -hmm. then you've got grace sherwood herself and the fact that the history of virginia beach even though it seems so spread out it's actually so rich and we've retained a lot of the old buildings from pre-revolutionary times i think you've got a perfect storm here it sounds like it. And, you know, with them claiming to have that many apparitions hanging around, it's pretty clear. Well, Whitney, thank you so much for suggesting this location. It is a great location, both historically and in regards to the ghostly activity. Oh, you're so welcome. It was it was actually really fun to sort of dig in and really connect again with Grace Sherwood, who, by the way, was actually pardoned by Governor Tim Kaine on July 10th, 2006, 300 years after the ducking trial. Oh, well, that's cool that they still remembered her all the way up till now. Oh, yeah. And there's also a statue of her at Sentara Bayside Hospital. Okay, very cool. Yeah. So it's really cool. But yeah, it was great to actually give this to you guys. And I hope everyone enjoys it. And come check it out sometime. Uh, Stroll of Lost Souls is going on, I think, October 26th and 27th. And that's pretty cool. If you get a chance to go by the plantation house sometime, I, let us know if anything happens to you. I will. I will definitely do that. And also, I'm going to head over to uh, Hanover Tavern on November 3rd for an event with this group called Transcend Paranormal. We're going to actually do some ghost hunting. So I'm going to see what happens there. Oh, great fun. I love yeah. that. All right. Well, you have a great night, Whitney. You too, Diane. All the best to you and happy Halloween. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. The Fairy Farm sounds like a wonderful place to visit, and it's nice to hear that Grace Sherwood finally got her deserved pardon. 
Is there some kind of energy left over from this superstitious time that feeds into the paranormal activity at this site? Are there really nearly a dozen ghosts here? Is the Fairy Plantation House haunted? That is for you to decide. Definitely going to make my way up to Virginia. There's so much great history there. And I would love to see Virginia Beach. And to see one of the, quote unquote, most haunted locations in Virginia is just a plus. Would love to have you guys check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I want to thank Kristen and Tony for your emails. Greatly appreciated those. I hope any of you listeners who were in the path of Hurricane Michael are doing okay. I am in my brand new studio in my brand new house. Closed on it last week, moved in this weekend, have most of my stuff still in boxes, but very soon we'll have everything back in its place and up and running and I'll be much more comfortable because I'll be in my own space again. So very excited to have gotten myself a new house. Don't forget that we are going to be doing Cemetery Bingo on October 28th. That's a Sunday. It's going to be Blackout Bingo, so you want to get as many of the symbols as you can on the card. We should have that card available for you very shortly. Have some reviews from Apple Podcasts to share. We Bubba Bubba, History Ghost Oddities, and Two Women Made for This Medium, five stars. I absolutely love your show. Increases the volume of useless but tasty information to add to the heap and done exquisitely. And the History of the Libertarian Past podcast still makes me shiver with adoration of you guys. And Christ followers to boot, you to exemplify what the real world can look like when acceptance is the rule, not the exception. Well, thank you so much for that. And Edie Darling, road trip companion, five stars. Knowing I had a five and a half hour road trip ahead, I was browsing for something interesting and creepy to listen to when I ran across your podcast. I'm hooked. Each episode has been informative as well as spooky. I love the factual tidbits that kick off the show. Always great content, interesting subjects, very thoroughly done. Just the perfect companion for my nighttime road trips. Thank you and keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Edie. We appreciate that. October is the month for trick-or-treating and I know a treat that I would love to get. If you have not already left us a review, I would love for you to do that either over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your podcasts. If they happen to have a place where you can review Stitcher, that kind of thing. Would love to have that. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. I'd like to welcome into the cemetery, James Wilfong. You will be getting a marble headstone. And Teresa Cox, you will be getting a chest tomb. And Beth Vanderyat, thank you so much for your increased pledge. We're going to be digging you up and putting you in a mausoleum. Mort, Halloween is coming, so I thought I would get you something. You know, we were talking about the bone shaker bike. What would you think if I got you a bone shaker? Sounds like some kind of oodoo or a dancing skeleton. I suppose that could sound like a dancing skeleton. Have you ever seen one of those? I'll never tell. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.